Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the ongoing history of new music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you'd do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? I'm starting this show out here on the street to prove a hypothesis. If there's one term that's misunderstood, it's indie rock or indie music. You ask 10 different people and you'll get 10 different definitions. Watch. Uh, you, uh, excuse me, but can you tell me what indie rock means to you? Ugh, get lost, weirdo. Okay, that's, that's not what I was expecting. Uh, oh, dude, dude. Can you tell me what indie rock is? What? No, I'm into that hip-hop, yo. I'm all about the beats and the rhymes and the cashing in. Okay, this isn't going well. Uh, okay, hi. Um, yeah, me, uh, hello. Uh, can you tell me where the term indie rock came from and why it seems to be so important to alternative rock? Well, that depends on your perspective and how you want to handle the question. Is it a sound? A way of doing business? A description of a financial state? Or is it some kind of ephemeral aesthetic that people find hard to put into words? It's all of those things, actually. So we have to look at its... Origins and history to understand what indie rock really is. Ah, uh, precisely. I'd be glad to help, because I have a few thoughts on the matter. No, 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 that's, that's, that's fine. I, I can handle this. Uh, really, I, I don't mind. I don't have to be anywhere. No, appreciate it, but... Please? No. Fine. I'll just sit here quietly and take notes. I'll send you my annotations and corrections. Thank you so much. Not a problem. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. And it's indie rock and roll for me. Those are the killers singing about indie rock. It's glamorous indie rock and roll. 
Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to spend a couple of programs tracing the history of indie rock and indie music, and why that music that has come up through these ranks has become so important to not just alternative rock, but today's rock and roll in general. Our story is of the records and the artists, but it's also of the labels and the people behind them. You can't tell one part of this story and not the other. But what are we really talking about? What exactly is, is indie music, is indie rock? This is a tough one. So we'll have to unpack this carefully. Indie is, of course, short for independent. This means we're dealing with music from artists who are not signed directly to one of the major multinational record labels. Artists who record for any other label, those who operate independently of the three major labels, are considered indie. Now, once upon a time, all record labels were indie. Okay, there were some that were bigger than others, like uh, DECA and London and RCA and EMI, but there were literally thousands of small labels that did their own thing. In the early 1960s, there were at least 3,000 such labels in existence in America alone. But as the music industry grew, bigger labels either swallowed up smaller ones, merged with each other, or just plain went out of business. By the time we got to the 1970s, we had six or seven labels that could be described as major. Today, we're down to just three, Universal, Sony, and Warner, and all their subsidiary labels, and there were dozens and dozens of those. Many of those subsidiaries have the look and feel of an indie label, and often that's very much by design, but they are still considered to be part of the major label machine. Everybody else, though, can be considered indie. Therefore, at its core, indie describes a certain type of record company, the artists it signs, and the music those artists create. Indie has nothing to do with how a band sounds or how many records it sells. And also, there are many, many genres that can fall under the umbrella term of indie. We gotta remember those three things, very important. Another aspect of being indie is the do-it-yourself ethic. Without a massive label infrastructure behind you, you gotta do a lot of the business and marketing legwork yourself. You have to act like an independent business person. This, however, isn't always the case. This applies to both the artist and anyone committed to getting their music out there. We also have to work in the word alternative. When punk arrived in the 1970s, most of the music was too radical for the bigger labels. Their main concern was to sell as many records as possible. And much punk and the music that followed it was nowhere near mainstream enough for them to care about. But there were people who appreciated this radical new music and started new independent labels because they loved it so much and wanted to give it an outlet. Signing to these independent labels was an alternative to the mainstream. They became known as alternative labels, and the music they promoted was alternative music. Meanwhile, in the UK, the word alternative never really caught on. Since most of this new music was coming from independent labels, the word indie stuck. But bottom line here is that there's plenty of crossover between the terms indie and alternative, although it later became possible to be an alternative act on a major label, but we'll, we'll get to that. Keep all this in mind because this will be central to the history of how these labels and artists have changed music. But right now, I want to play you an indie band that some people insist was the first true alternative group in history. This is the Velvet Underground.
The Velvet Underground, from their 1967 debut album, which was released on Verve, an independent jazz label founded in 1956 that decided to take a chance on the Velvets, thanks largely to the group's connection to Andy Warhol. He was their uh, manager and biggest promoter back then. At a time when rock and roll was about cars and girls, the Velvet Underground was just too weird for the mainstream. The only alternative was to go with an indie label with a history of experimenting with music. Four years after Verve was founded, an Englishman living in Jamaica named Chris Blackwell decided that he had to bring the island's music to the rest of the world. So on July 4th, 1959, he and two partners created Island Records, taking the name from the Harry Belafonte song, Island in the Sun. Their startup capital amounted to 100 pounds. Now, from day one, Island Records was all about exporting ska, reggae, and other music from Jamaica and the Caribbean, although after 1962, the company was based in the United States. That same year, Blackwell moved back to England, where he started signing local acts, the Spencer Davis Group, Roxy Music, King Crimson, Traffic. In 1980, they signed an Irish group called U2. So, um, from Boy in 1980 to Rattle and Hum in 1988... U2 was technically an indie band. Doesn't matter that the Joshua Tree sold 25 million copies. They were the property of an indie label. And they ended up on Island because no other label wanted them. But the biggest and most influential act on Island was Bob Marley and the Whalers, who came on board with Island in 1972. And, uh, well, do I really need to explain how big a deal Bob Marley is? Bob Marley and the Whalers from their 1977 album Exodus. Back then, they were an indie band on the independent Island Records. Now they're considered to be a major label because Island was bought by Polygram in 1989, which eventually morphed into Universal, one of today's three major labels. Another independent label that ended up changing music was A&M Records. They were formed by Herb Alpert, the A, and his partner, Jerry Moss, who is the M. This was 1962. By the time they were bought by Polygram in 1989, they were the biggest indie label in the world. Most of their acts were pretty mainstream and pretty middle of the road. This was a label of the Carpenters, after all, and the company that dropped the Sex Pistols after just five days. But they did contribute to the world of alt-rock. OMD was on A&M, the Human League, and so was this odd post-punk band called The Police. One-time indie band heroes The Police. Actually, since every single one of their albums and singles was on A&M Records, we can actually say that they were an indie band for their entire career. And, like Bob Marley on Island, they sold 75 million records for A&M, underscoring the part of the definition of indie that says that the appellation has nothing to do with commercial success. It's all about the relationship to a specific kind of record label. Let's reel this in just a bit. This is part one of a four-part program that traces the history of indie rock, independent labels and their artists who helped shape the course of music. 
One of the first indie labels tagged with the term alternative seems to be Berserkly Records, a company founded by members of a Bay Area band called Earthquake in 1973. The principals in the company were annoyed at the way the bigger labels did business, so they thought they could do better on their own, and for about 10 years they muddled their way through the process. Much of what Berserkly releases was of the power pop variety, and one of the most enduring and influential acts was a guy from Boston who was a big Velvet Underground fan. Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers never sold a lot of records, but they were very important to the early punks and many of the post-punk bands like the Sex Pistols and R.E.M. and the Violent Femmes and Dinosaur Jr. and the Cars and the Pixies and the Ramones. Let's have a listen. This is Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, recorded in 1971 with a song called Roadrunner. Okay, now you say Modern Lovers. Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, recorded in 1971, released in 1976 on the Berserkly label, and it's called Roadrunner, which is about a Plymouth muscle car, not a cartoon bird. Let's move to the East Coast. 1966, two guys, Seymour Stein and Richard Gotteher. They took $10,000 and they set up a record label in New York City that they called Sire Records. And their plan was to simply distribute cool British and European records in the United States. And they did okay. But then in 1975, Seymour decided to check out a bar in one of the scuzziest parts of Manhattan, and this is where he found the Ramones, and they became one of Sire's first domestic signings. See, back then, nobody wanted to touch the Ramones. They were just too weird, they played too fast, they were too amateurish, and they were too funny-looking for all the other labels. Later, when the band did have a record, mainstream rock radio would have nothing to do with them. They considered the Ramones to be a joke. But Seymour, a guy who grew up on the music of the 50s and 60s, heard them for what they really were, a 60s-style pop band that just happened to play their songs at the speed and volume of a jet engine. He loved them, and he had to have them for Sire, so he did. And even though the Ramones never sold many records, we now look at them as one of the most important rock bands ever, period, full stop. The Ramones, one of the first signings to an indie label called Sire. The company would also sign the Talking Heads and the Dead Boys and the Undertones. And before the company was bought by Warner and ceased to be an indie label, someone in the office invented a new term. Remember how I mentioned that Sire began as a company dedicated to distributing cool records from the UK and Europe and North America? They continued to do that in the late 1970s, especially when British punk rock began to mutate into something more melodic, something less violent and less political. Sire learned from the reception they got with the Ramones. If they were too fast and too hard for North America, they needed a way to blunt the negative perceptions some of this new music called punk and post-punk seemed to encounter. We need to market this right, said Seymour, but how are we going to do this? We can't call it punk because that means commercial suicide. We need to call it something else. The phrase new wave had been bandied about for a few years. Some critics used it to describe music that wasn't punk, but by listening to it, you could tell that punk had happened. 
There were traces of the phrase in an old UK zine called Sniffin' Glue, as well as in the NME and Melody Maker. Malcolm McLaren, who was still the manager of the Sex Pistols at the time, peppered some of his interviews with this term. This got Seymour thinking, why not replace punk and underground with new wave? And so in early 1977, Sire launched a marketing campaign called Don't Call It Punk and began leaning heavily on the term new wave. And it worked. New wave became a new umbrella term for a host of post-punk music. And at first, most of it came from Britain. The Pretenders, another Sire signing, were new wave. So was Depeche Mode and Elvis Costello and Echo and the Bunnymen and The Cure and The Smiths. By simply altering the language of music marketing, Sire opened up whole new vistas for British bands in North America. Oh, in addition to letting millions know what was happening in clubs like CBGB. The Talking Heads from their 1977 debut album. Back then, they were an indie band on an indie label. But when Sire was acquired by Warner Brothers in 1978, they became part of a major label operation. But not before they contributed some very important attributes to music in general. I should also point out that Sire also signed this woman from Michigan named Madonna. But that happened after they became part of Warner. Now that we've touched on punk, we should really dive deep into that area. The punk of the 1970s was the first major music scene of the modern rock era to be built entirely on independent record companies. In Britain, punk rock would never have had a chance to take root if it weren't for independent-minded musicians and entrepreneurs, because the big record companies, the respectable companies, would have nothing to do with this music. Absolutely nothing. And neither would any radio station. Punk was programming and ratings poison, there were no video channels back then, so that wasn't an option. So the only way the music got documented and spread was through cool record stores, small publications, and word of mouth. And it all started with the independent record labels and the artists who flocked to them. Now, we've already seen how Sire Records took a chance on the Ramones and changed music forever. And we also saw it with Virgin Records and the Sex Pistols. Richard Branson started Virgin when he was just 15. Its first incarnation was a mail-order record service and fanzine from his bedroom. When he was 22, the venture expanded to a small store called Virgin Records and Tapes in the Notting Hill area of London. The company didn't sign any artists directly. What they did was distribute imports for other labels. But after a while, why not start a new label? So Branson and his partners did, and their first signing was Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. That became a huge hit, which allowed Virgin to finance an expansion. Now, fast forward to 1977. EMI, England's biggest record label and the home of the Beatles, had tried and failed with the Sex Pistols. So had A&M. Both found the band far too toxic and paid them to go away. Branson, though, saw an opportunity and signed them up. Smart move. The Pistols and punk exploded, which led to a long run of new wave and post-punk hits from Simple Minds and XTC and Culture Club. From the Smashing Pumpkins to Lenny Kravitz, and from the Human League to Genesis. Thanks to music, Virgin expanded into other areas before Branson sold the company to EMI for about a billion dollars in 1992. And that's how he managed to finance the creation of Virgin Airlines. But back to the Sex Pistols. Had Virgin, this upstart indie label, not taken a chance on the Sex Pistols, 
Who knows where British Pug might have ended up? After 1976, the number of British indie labels devoted to punk and all the new music it spawned increased exponentially. Many evaporated after just a few releases, destroyed by the formidable financial perils of running a record company like this, but some did survive. Stiff, for example. This was a small company formed by Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera in 1976 and was totally devoted to punk. In fact, Stiff was the first label to release any kind of punk record in the UK. The date for that was October the 22nd, 1976. The group was The Damned, and the song was New Rose. I never thought this could happen to me. This is strange. Oh, why should it be? I don't deserve somebody this great. New Rose from The Damned, the first punk rock single ever released in the UK, October 22nd, 1976, and the first release from Stiff Records, perhaps the most important label when it came to pushing DIY punk, do-it-yourself punk, in the infancy of that music. Now, this was great stuff. Elvis Costello, Madness, The Pogues, Motorhead. But Stiff was terrible at conducting business. They were, well, irresponsible. And they bled money and were sold off by 1983. And the buyer? Another indie, Island Records. One more for this episode, Rough Trade. In 1976, Jeff Travis took a trip across the U.S. buying up all kinds of records. And when he got home, he didn't have anywhere to put them, so he decided to start up a store with his record collection acting as inventory. It also became a hangout for people into non-mainstream music. They bought records, they pushed fanzines, they swapped gossip, and advertised for musicians. And that shop is still open just off Portobello Road in Notting Hill. In 1978, Travis decided to jump into the indie record label game. And one of the label's very earliest releases was by a Belfast band called Stiff Little Fingers. Here it is. This is Alternative Ulster. Stiff Little Fingers and Alternative Ulster from October 1978, one of the first releases on the brand new British indie label Rough Trade. We will come back to them a little later. Rough Trade, Stiff, Virgin, and dozens of others were at the center of indie culture in Britain at the end of the 1970s. They were small and nimble, privately owned companies, able to reckon what new music was out there and react accordingly. They were often very short of funds. But sometimes, being cash-strapped forces you into being extra creative with revenue streams. Or not. In fact, frequently not. Let's recap. In the beginning, all record labels were indies. But as the bigger companies bought or merged with the smaller ones, we ended up with essentially a two-tier class system. The major record labels and everybody else. And while the major labels and major label artists got most of the attention and the money, the underclass of indie labels were often responsible for driving music forward. Now, to the outsider, it looked like they picked up the dregs, the artists rejected by the majors. But in truth, they were investing in the future by taking a chance on stuff that no one else would touch. 
Because these labels gave this music an outlet, the whacked-out experimental lo-fi of the Velvet Underground, which begat the proto-power pop of groups like Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers and punks like the Ramones, both of which found favor with the Sex Pistols, who then spurred the formation of hundreds, if not thousands, of bands in the UK. Meanwhile, Island Records exported reggae to the world via Bob Marley. All these names are very well known today and considered to be immeasurably influential, but back then, they were obscure indie artists. On part two of our history of indie music, we'll look at more of what happened in the late 1970s as well as the early 1980s, and we're going to start encountering the words alternative and college rock a lot more. Meanwhile, if you'd like to discuss anything with me, I'm always available at alan and alancross.ca, and I invite you to visit my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update that every single day. Plus, there's my newsletter that's filled with musical goodness. It's free, and it's in your inbox by 10 a.m. each weekday. Plus, if you want to do Facebook, there's a dedicated ongoing history page, as well as a couple of my own. Plus, we got Twitter and Instagram and Google Plus, too. I await your correspondence. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. (laughs) 